Haunted UK podcast is recorded and mixed in stereo. Listening through an environment such as stereo speakers or headphones will ensure you get the best experience. Let me quickly tell you about our official podcast sponsor, CDS Print and Design. CDS is a family-run company who offer great prices and great products, such as printed t-shirts, hoodies, canvases, coasters, placemats, stickers, banners, signage, and much, much more. For more information or for a free no-obligation quote, email Colin or Debbie at cdsprintanddesign at gmail.com. You can also find CDS Print and Design on Facebook and Instagram. Before we get started, I just want to let you know that the Haunted UK podcast is now on coffee. If you love the show and want more content, such as bite-sized bonus episodes, horror and paranormal movie reviews, chances to get your hands on exclusive Haunted UK podcast merchandise courtesy of CDS Print and Design, as well as a free Haunted UK podcast sticker and much more, then get yourself over to Coffee and sign up to donate just £3 per month. That's KO-FI and search for the Haunted UK podcast. Coffee. Why not buy us one? This is Season 2 of the Haunted UK podcast. In this season, we're going to cast our net far and wide to tell stories of UFOs, unsolved mysteries, strange creatures unexplained disappearances, as well as further tales of ghosts, poltergeists and haunted locations. But before we dive in, why not make a note to listen to the following great podcast. Persons Unknown is a true crime podcast dedicated to unsolved murders and disappearances. My name is John. I'm based in Wales and cover cases from Wales, the rest of the UK and the wider world. Each episode tells the story of a cold case, from the original timeline right through to recent developments. The content is based on thorough research, and all the evidence is presented in a clear and engaging way. There's no banter, but a respectful narration of what happened and any theories. A new episode is released every other Monday, with occasional bonus episodes. There are already plenty of episodes to binge, Find Persons Unknown wherever you listen to podcasts. The following episode includes discussions regarding depression and suicide. If at any time you feel that you are struggling with your mental health, then please seek professional help. Take a moment to imagine that a very good friend of yours tells you that they have been feeling down and not themselves lately. That friend describes to you that they've been thinking of ways to rekindle their interests in their education, their hobbies, and generally their life. Now try to imagine that you'll never see that person again, and they'll never be found.
This is episode 14 of the Haunted UK podcast. And in this episode, we'll hear the story of the mysterious disappearance of Paula Jean Weldon. Mysterious disappearances, unsolved murders and cold cases have been a source of intrigue and interest for many years. We invest ourselves in reading, listening or watching documentaries about these strange cases, making mental notes about evidence that doesn't seem to make sense, witnesses that seem to act out of character, generally trying our utmost to solve these mysteries once and for all. The disappearance of Paula Jean Weldon is one such case with one huge difference. It took place in an area known as the Bennington Triangle. Not only have people gone missing in this peculiar area, but there have also been sightings of strange creatures, reports of eerie lights in the sky, cases of serial killers and much more, all concentrated in this one place. But what makes the Bennington Triangle such an attractive prospect to all these strange phenomena? Well, that is just as much of a mystery as the incident that we're about to delve into. Paula Jean Weldon was born on the 19th of October 1928 in Stamford, Connecticut. She was the eldest of four sisters. Her father, William Archibald Weldon, was quite a well-known engineer, architect and designer. And along with their mother, Jean Douglas, the family dynamic was that of a regular, happy and successful household. In 1946, Paula became a student at Bennington College in Vermont. She shared a room with Elizabeth Johnson in the Dewey Hall dormitories, and as well as her studies, she worked two shifts at the college dining hall. Paula had many different interests, including hiking, camping, swimming, and playing guitar. At the time, she was studying art, but she didn't feel that this was going too well for her, and according to reports, she was seriously considering changing her major to botany instead. Elizabeth had noticed that over the course of a week or so before her disappearance, Paula had become quite down, depressed and distant. Although they would still talk very often, their conversation wasn't as normal and light-hearted as usual. Elizabeth Johnson would later put this down to an argument which Paula had had with her father, but her initial statement to the police was that Paula didn't seem distressed in any way at all. But we'll come back to this later. As well as Elizabeth, other friends of Paula had felt that part of her depression was down to boyfriend problems, but this was never really substantiated. Her father, however, had his opinions, but again, we'll come back to these later on as well. She was expected home for Thanksgiving, but had called her parents to tell them that she was staying at her college campus. This may have been the argument that Elizabeth Johnson was referring to earlier. Paula decided that she needed to clear her head, get a new positive perspective and direction on things, and as Elizabeth would later state, do something that would help rejuvenate herself. Paula's plan was to go on a hike, taking a trail known in the area as the Long Trail. This trail stretched for some 270 miles, snaking its way through woodland and forests to the north of Bennington until finishing at the border of Canada. Now, it's quite obvious that Paula wasn't planning on hiking the full 270-mile trail. As far as her friends were all concerned, 
this was only going to be a hike lasting a few hours, and she was expected back later that evening. On the 1st of December 1946, Paula finished her usual shift at the dining hall and made her way back to her dorm room. She changed into a pair of jeans, white training shoes, and a distinct red parka coat with a fur trim around the hood. She told Elizabeth Johnson, I'm all through with studies. I'm going for a long walk. Then Elizabeth watched her leave the room, and that was the last time she ever saw her. The time was approximately 2.45pm. The day was a chilly 10 degrees Celsius, but the evening temperature was set to plummet to sub-zero figures and snowfall was quite regular around this time of year in Bennington. As Paula made her way out of the college campus, the first person to see her was Danny Fager, who owned the petrol station opposite the college. He distinctively remembered seeing Paula, pointing out her blonde hair and red parka jacket. Paula began walking up Route 67A at around 3pm, hitchhiking for a ride to the start of the long trail, and was picked up not long after by Louis Knapp of near Wickford. Louis told police that he picked Paula up at around 3pm and drove her to Route 9, near to where he lived, and also just three miles away from the beginning of the trail. He commented that he was a little alarmed by her clothing when she told him that she was hiking the long trail. He told her to be careful and they were the only words they spoke until she was dropped off when she thanked Louis for the ride. Paula continued to make her way to the trail and was next seen by Ernie Whitman and his three friends. Ernie said that at about 4pm he and his friends were leaving their campsite at Bickford Hollow when they saw a young woman dressed in jeans and a red parka coat. Paula had asked Ernie and his group a few questions about the trail and after they answered, they voiced their concerns to her regarding how lightly she was dressed and how unprepared she seemed. She didn't have any supplies, no backpack, no water and it was going to be getting dark very soon, as well as much colder. According to Ernie, this didn't seem to concern her and she continued towards a bridge that led to the trail. Other sightings of someone resembling Paula were reported by a number of people near a camp called Faye Fuller, but the witnesses couldn't be 100% certain that it was her. It was now around 4.30pm, getting dark, and Paula Weldon was heading on a trail completely unprepared and completely alone. She never returned. Hours passed and Paula's roommate Elizabeth was becoming increasingly worried that she still hadn't turned up. She decided to give Paula until the morning before she would report anything to college authorities. After all, she could be in the library studying, or she may have found somewhere to stay overnight. When Elizabeth woke the next morning, there was still no sign of Paula, so she decided to express her concerns to college president Lewis Webster-Jones. Jones's first port of call was to get in touch with Paula's parents to see if she had decided to return home to see them. According to William Weldon, when the call came through about the possibility of his daughter being missing, his wife became so upset that she collapsed with shock. William Weldon immediately packed a few things and made his way to Bennington College campus to begin searching for Paula. Back at the college, Director of Admissions Mary Garrett had been in touch with the state's attorney as well as the county sheriff who both made their way to the college to help. Many searches were organised, involving hundreds of people. 
William Weldon gathered a large group of volunteers from the local community, as well as residents and members from both Bennington and Williams Colleges. All college classes were cancelled to enable students to help out with the search. National Guard troops and firefighters also offered their services. The numbers grew and grew, the search area widened, but nothing was found. Because of William Weldon's wealth and connections, he was able to influence others to join the search, such as the Connecticut governor, Raymond E. Baldwin, but this also proved fruitless. As the days went by, witnesses began coming forward with reports of sightings. A waitress, or a teletier, who worked at the modern restaurant in Fall River, Massachusetts, said that she had served a young woman who matched Paula Weldon's description at around 9.30pm on the day of her disappearance. Aura recalled that the young woman was with a man around 25 years old. The man appeared quite drunk and abusive, and when he had gone to the counter to order, the woman signalled for Aura to come over to her. She told Aura that she'd got to Riverfall with a thousand dollars but had got nothing left. She needed to get back to Bennington and wanted to know how far away it was. Aura didn't think that the young woman had been drinking, but said that her behaviour seemed a little off. She seemed dazed and confused by her situation. This lead proved so promising to William Weldon that he disappeared for around 36 hours to go and investigate it himself. The distance from Bennington College to River Fall is approximately 170 miles. Paula was last seen on the long trail at around 4.30pm and seen in the restaurant at approximately 9.30pm. Whilst it isn't impossible to cover that distance in a car or bus, it does seem that this would have had to have happened very quickly. And also, who was the drunken abusive man that was allegedly with her? Could this be the troublesome boyfriend that had been causing the problems? This lead yielded nothing except for the police becoming very suspicious to find out that her father would disappear for 36 hours without informing anyone of his intentions to follow up the sighting. Where had he gone? And why was he gone for so long? Did he spend all that time travelling around Riverfall, asking the public if they had seen or heard from his missing daughter? or were there more sinister motives at work? Another witness, Abe Ruskin, a local taxi driver, said that he had taken a young student to the bus station on the Sunday afternoon, but he couldn't be 100% sure it was Paula. All bus drivers in the area were contacted to see if they had seen or picked up anyone resembling Paula's description. Aircraft were brought in to increase the search area capacity. Dogs were also brought in to see if they could pick up a scent, but this was doubtful as snow had fallen on the night of her disappearance and this had been treaded down multiple times by search groups. There was quite simply no trace of her. No clothing, no blood, no body, no remains. A reward was issued for information leading to the discovery of Paula Weldon, but even this didn't bring any new leads or information. Before we continue, here's a message from another great podcast. Scotland's history is ghoulish, ghastly, and at times downright gruesome. Who wouldn't want to hear more about it? If you're interested in learning more about Scotland's history, legends, and ghost stories, then the Generally Spooky podcast is for you. 
My name is Ailey, researcher, storyteller, and believer in ghosts. And my name is Kieran. I'm chief listener, provider of jokes, and Ailey's husband. And we are the co-hosts of the Generally Spooky podcast. Join us as we discuss things like the Loch Ness Monster, the Mackenzie Poltergeist, the Battle of Culloden, and so much more. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You can also find us for free on YouTube and over at our website, generallyspooky.com. We'll see you there. See you there. Now, back to the show. By this time, the authorities were beginning to suspect foul play more and more. As more witnesses came forward, it became clear that there was another young woman in the area, closely matching Paula's description, but taller. She was also with a man, and they also had a car. This couple could have easily have confused witnesses who thought they'd seen Paula, and this couple could have been the ones seen by waitress Aura in River Falls. More sightings were reported, and even a set of footprints were found by a college faculty member. But on the 15th of December, the search was called off. William Weldon gathered his daughter's belongings and took them back home with him. His frustration towards the authorities was huge. He criticised them for not taking the disappearance of his daughter seriously, for searches not being organised correctly and catalogued, and for also not keeping any records of the last 10 days of search activity. The press quickly grabbed a hold of this information and ran with it, giving the area and its authorities a completely negative outlook. Small search parties continued to walk the long trail, but by January 1947, the weather had turned so bad that any evidence that could have been out there would have been buried under snow. As the snow melted in May, William Weldon returned to take up the search again, in the hope that, now that the long trail was clear, it would be much easier to spot any clothing or other items that Paula may have had with her. These new searches may even lead to the discovery of remains. Over the two days that were spent going over the area again, nothing was found. The case seemed to go cold. With no body and no leads, Paula Weldon had seemingly disappeared into thin air. It was another eight years before the police had a call regarding a suspect who they felt could be a person of interest. In 1955, friends of a local Bennington man came forward with information saying that this individual had boasted that he had known all along what had happened to Paula and where she was buried. Police immediately brought this man in for questioning, but he was unable to lead the authorities to a body or any remains. He insisted that his boasts were just idle jokes and that he had no information about Paula Weldon at all. He was released without charge. Another 13 years went by without any new leads, and the case was about to be declared as cold when a skeleton was discovered in the Adams area around 22 miles away from Bennington College. The skeleton was excavated and taken for testing, and closure for the family seemed to be, finally, on the cards. But after extensive testing was completed, the bones were deemed far too old to be that of Paula Weldon. 75 years later, and Paula Weldon's mother and father went to their graves without finding out the truth about their daughter's disappearance and her final fate. So what could have possibly happened all those years ago? And where could Paula be? 
Firstly, there seemed to be some confusion in the statements from Elizabeth Johnson and other friends of Paula's who were interviewed. Where Elizabeth had stated that Paula had seemed depressed, others stated that the day before she vanished, Paula was in excellent spirits. So who was telling the truth here? Elizabeth didn't have anything to gain from murdering Paula, and she also had a watertight alibi anyway. So why lie? She knew about the falling out between Paula and her father, and this could have been why Paula's mood had changed so quickly. For a while, Paula's own father was a suspect when he decided to disappear for 36 hours to investigate a lead. But where did he actually go? Some friends of Paula revealed that all in the house of the Weldon family wasn't as rosy as first thought. But who hasn't been involved in arguments and bad atmospheres involving family members in their lives? If anything, it was William Weldon who used his clout to get more authorities to investigate the case. So surely this would have left him way more vulnerable to exposure if something suspicious would have reared up involving him. Let's look into the suicide theory for a minute. Paula Weldon, depressed because of her lack of self-achievement at college, desperately wanting to change major, with a boyfriend who is constantly on her mind, warring with her father and feeling like she's failing at everything. So she plans for a hike at a time which will give her a generous window to pick her spot and execute her plan. But where's the body? Where's the evidence? No clothing, no blood, no trace whatsoever of her even being there. Apart from the few witnesses that saw her, she was pretty much invisible. The next theory would be that she had finally had enough of college life and just simply wanted to get away. But this theory splits into two sub-theories. The first being that she simply ran away, took what money she had, and with the clothes on her back, headed for the trail knowing that authorities would be spending the majority of their time searching the woodland and forests. This would give her ample opportunity to make her getaway, hike to a road, flag down a car or truck, and make her way to another life. But why didn't any of these people, who may have given her a ride, recognise her in the newspapers and come forward as witnesses? The second sub-theory here is the boyfriend. Did this relationship become so toxic that it cost Paula her life? If this wasn't the case, and if they were running away to start up a new life together, how did they leave Bennington and the trail without being seen? What if Paula really did simply want to go for a hike to get away from it all for a few hours? What if she became lost? Lost in the darkness, stumbling onto pathways that weren't necessarily part of the main trail, continuing to walk for hour and hour until she was either so cold that she couldn't continue or so exhausted that she had to rest. If she found shelter, could she survive the night in the sub-zero temperatures? Possibly, yes. But by morning, if she had no idea where she was, she would simply be going further and further into the wilderness. It's also important to note that when the searches for Paula took place, Because of the weather and conditions, search groups only concentrated on areas around 20 feet either side of the trail paths. If Paula had wandered even a few miles into tough, rocky, dense, forested terrain, the chances of her being found were very small. But that still doesn't account for partial remains, 
clothing or any personal items that have never been found. Even if Paula had froze to death, there's still a huge chance that wildlife in the area would still have used her body as a source for food. With all of this said, there's still one huge difference between this case and many other missing person cases. And that is that Paula wasn't the only person to seemingly vanish into thin air in the Bennington area. Earlier in the episode, I mentioned the Bennington Triangle. Five people, including Paula Weldon, disappeared in the space of just five years inside the area known as the Bennington Triangle. Of the five, only one body was ever found. And this was still incredibly suspicious, as the location at which it was found had been searched multiple times. Could these five strange disappearances have been the work of an elusive serial killer? One who could have been stalking the area for years? Quite possibly, yes. But there are other explanations. The Bennington Triangle has been long linked with paranormal phenomena and sightings of cryptoid creatures. Does the Bennington Triangle harbour a centuries-old paranormal force that, when unleashed, causes innocent people in the immediate area to vanish? Are they transported to an alternative dimension, never to be seen or heard from again, or is there a more sinister explanation? Many theorists believe that these five cases are prime examples of classic alien abduction. And regardless of what your personal view of the possibility of the existence of aliens is, these cases do strike countless similarities with other alien abduction stories. UFOs have been spotted in the Bennington area for decades, so is it completely out of the realms of possibility to theorise that these people are being abducted, but then returned to areas so remote that they have no chance of finding their way back to civilization? Even in the case of Frida Langer, whose body was the only one ever found, was she accidentally killed during the abduction process and then returned to the area which had already been searched? If you don't think you can get on board with the alien abduction theory, then how about the possibility that all of the people were abducted and killed by a legendary creature, such as Bigfoot? One other possible explanation could be that all of these missing people are the victims of ritual sacrifice. Witchcraft and the occult have been practiced by humans for centuries. There are societies and cults all over the world who still believe in the powers of dark magic, spells and curses. Could a group or organisation such as this exist in the Bennington area even today? Pushing aside all of the speculation, theories and accusations, we're still left with the fact that, for 75 years, Paula Jean Weldon has remained missing. No evidence or trace of her or her belongings has ever been found, and no closure was ever made available to her family. I only hope that, sometime in the near future, some tiny shred of evidence will appear to help close this case for good and to let Paula Weldon finally rest in peace. Well, we've come to the end of this episode of the Haunted UK podcast. But before I go, I'd like to give a few shout-outs. And the first one is to all of you, the listeners. Thank you so much for following, subscribing and listening. None of this would be possible without all of you. 
The show is available on all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Breaker, Pocket Casts, and Radio Public. Wherever possible, leaving a positive five-star review helps the show in many ways. Listener figures are rapidly rising, and that's all down to you. So a huge thanks to all of you. Another shout-out goes to the show's sponsor, CDS Print and Design, who have been kind enough to come back for a second season. Huge thanks again to both Colin and Debbie. Next up is another request to all you listeners out there. Have you seen a ghost? Witnessed poltergeist activity? Had a strange, unexplained paranormal experience? Have you ever stayed in a haunted location or experienced something frightening on a ghost tour? Even better, do you live or work in a haunted house or building? Have you encountered or seen a UFO? Heard a story about an unsolved disappearance or mystery? Or have you been lucky enough to witness a strange, unknown creature? If you have, then your story could feature on our Listener Stories finale episode. Simply type your story up and email it to hauntedukpodcast at hotmail.com That's hauntedukpodcast at hotmail.com It's easy to do, and if you like, you can remain anonymous. Huge thanks in advance to you all. Besides writing, recording, mixing and mastering this podcast, I also run a mixing and mastering studio called Pink Flamingo Music Productions. If you have a podcast or piece of music that you'd like mixing, mastering or both, or if you'd like a piece of finished music written for a project that you're working on, then please email the studio with details of your inquiry to pinkflamingo.musicproductions at hotmail.com. That's pinkflamingo.musicproductions at hotmail.com. It's nowhere near as expensive as you'd think. This podcast was recorded at Pink Flamingo Music Production Studio in Hales Owen in the West Midlands, England. For a full list of research sources that helped immensely with the content of this episode, please refer to the show's notes. Thank you all so much again for listening, and we'll be back very soon with another episode. Until then, stay safe and take care.